everyone. I'm Stephanie Boloris, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Principal Analyst Enza Yanapolo to discuss our 2022 predictions for digital trust. Welcome, Enza. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. So, 2021, it's been a turbulent year. It's In many ways, it's been a continuation of 2020, uh, particularly when it comes to digital acceleration. We've con- We've seen companies just continue to pour money into new customer engagement models, new employee engagement models, even new business models with a whole slew of of partners. And we've seen some deployment of emerging tech. At the same time, we've seen huge changes in trust patterns. You know, a lot of individuals who used to have sort of, um, you know, outright trust in, say, government institutions, social institutions, even religious institutions, a lot of those trust patterns have been changing. And so just to kick it off before we get into the actual predictions, how has this increased reliance on on technology, on digital engagement models continued to impact those trust patterns? Yes, it's um, it has been um, uh, eighteen months now, probably that we have seen um, these dynamics happening, particularly um, or accelerating, um, I should say. Um, and the impact on trust has been uh, significant. We have been starting to talk about uh, systemic risk now and how actually these systemic risk ha- are having an impact on um, on trust. You know, just to give just simple examples, we have seen. Um, consumers relying more and more on, on digital infrastructure to uh, go into interact with their banks and um, open accounts, asking for mortgages and loans. And those were very sensitive interaction. They, they are very sensitive interaction. People would go face to face to have them. And now they are relying on, on technology. There were a number of issues from identity fraud uh, to a number of other threats there that uh, um, consumers have experienced and, and businesses have experienced. Uh, one thing that is, uh, to me, very interesting, though, uh, is the fact that even when we ask after this pandemic, after this time um, has passed, would consumers still try and rely on technology even for this very sensitive interaction? The question is yes. Our data is suggesting there is a large number of consumers that still would prefer to have a a digital engagement with a bank if they have to ask for a mortgage rather than going back to a face-to-face engagement. How is this changing the relationship with uh, the trustworthy relationship with that bank is technology having an impact? Clearly, yes. And because these changes from a technology adoption perspective are here to stay, then companies have to think about a way of mitigating some of the uh, trust threats and risks that um, are coming uh, with, with reliance on technology. Yeah, it's really interesting. I and mean, we've seen this rapid acceleration of digital engagement models. And then at the same time, we have seen some backlash on certain categories of technology. The one that comes to mind is facial recognition technology, where you have cities, various types of jurisdictions actually banning the use of the the technology, either outright or they're banning it by use in law enforcement. In some cases, we've actually seen companies pull back from the technology as well, you know, refusing to deploy it, no longer deploying it. Facebook recently actually committed to turning off facial recognition technology, at least in their main (laughs) Facebook uh, platform, yet to be seen whether it will be part of um, their meta universe. But so it seems in certain categories of tech, there is a lack of trust and people are pulling back from it. And there's a backlash that companies are clearly recognizing. 
Yes, we are definitely seeing that. Those are some examples that you have. And we have been discussing um, in the research this kind of dual relationship uh, that technology has with trust. Because, yes, there are examples of uh, bias or specific technology, um, like the uh, facial recognition, that people feel scared about, that have fears um, um, about. But at the same time, we also know that technology is offering an opportunity to companies, to consumers, to really understand more what happens to their data, for example. Um, what, you know, I cover um, privacy. And, and for me, when I look at the way the privacy um, uh, software can really help companies improve the kind of trustworthy relationship with those consumers. It's interesting. If I can come back to a company and say, hey, I want to know the data that you have collected about me, um, or look, I want you to delete my data, and I have confidence that that, that company is coming back to me with a list of the data that they have, that makes me feel better, gives me more control over what that company is doing with my data. It also shows competence, you can say, the company coming back on time with the data that I'm expecting to see. And it shows empathy. The company, there are many that actually are trying and help their consumers understand this is the data that we have been collecting. This is the way we are using it. And they are trying to put this together in a way that a consumer can easily understand how the data is being used. And so we have more transparency, we have the competence, we have empathy. All of those are important drivers of trust. And so here you have it, how technology can on one side threaten trust relationship. On the other side, can be really utilized to improve uh, and increase uh, how consumers, customers, partners, employees trust uh, a certain organization. The, the, the technology is a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's it's creating a lot of angst and worry. And then at the same time, companies are actually turning to the tech <laughs> to build trust and to relieve some of that, that angst. Um, so actually, let's get Let's get right into the predictions then. So prediction number one that we made in the digital trust predictions, um, we predicted that the adoption of privacy-preserving technologies would double in 2022. Can you actually give us some example of Mm -hmm. privacy-preserving tech, maybe even defining it a bit? Yes, sure. So um, the way I think of it, and and there is... Plant, you know, this is, has become also almost uh, an umbrella term for many different things. And so I try just to explain in a way that makes it manageable, um, at least for me. The very first one, the very first bucket, if you like, is um, encryption. And homomorphic encryption is the uh, uh, probably most well-known example. Um, and this is fundamentally the ability to query a data set, to query um, data and while the data stays encrypted. So you don't need to decrypt that data. You can query the data, the data stay uh, encrypted at all time. And this is the category really of, of encryption. And then there is a second category that is around privacy filtering. And um, there are examples such as uh, the uh, um, uh, um, AI generated synthetic data. So where the result of that query uh, doesn't contain personal identifiers because those personal identifiers has been changed with, again, synthetic data. The value of the query is still there. The value out of that is still there. It's just avoiding to share and to show the personal identifiers. And then you have things like the um, k-anonymity of differential uh, privacy. Again, the idea is to get to a level of aggregation or adding noise to the data so that the overall value of the result is there, but the Potential for singling out an individual, for re-identifying an individual is very low. 
And then finally, you have the category of the uh, core anonymization. There is a lot of discussion, even from our regulatory side of things, about this kind of technology, but is the secure multi-party computation or the confidential computing. Those are some of the examples for the core anonymity that can allow organization to collaborate on, on sensitive data in the cloud um, and still taking care of their privacy commitments, being regulatory or really kind of uh, uh, corporate commitment to employees, to customers, to partners. We know that privacy has become really important to to clients, to consumers, to citizens, to individuals. What else is driving at the use case? Is it AI itself? Is there, you know, just this quest to use more and more data? To your point, to actually join data sets. Um, are there certain industries, I guess the one that comes to mind immediately is medical research. What exactly is driving it beyond the core privacy concerns? I was uh, giving a speech recently and I said, it's kind of, it's the promise of the holy grail, right? You get the maximum value out of your analytics because finally you can go and analyze sensitive personal data of your customer, of your employees. And at the same time, it gives you protection from a privacy perspective. And this is your regulatory requirements, but it's also, again, that corporate commitment that you make to your employees, your customer, to your partner. So to me, it's really the idea that finally we are going to get the maximum value exploiting the data without funding ourselves in trouble. Again, and this is an ideal state. That's the promise. There are a number of, uh, you know, there are uh, nuances to these, but that's the idea. That's the power of this technology. Uh, and some of the examples are quite powerful, um, indeed, and especially the one on the um, network collaboration when you have pharma, uh, pharma companies and hospitals and pharmacies putting together data set of patients that really are incredibly sensitive uh, for analysis, that, that is powerful. Okay. Uh, and are we certain that regulatory authorities will recognize the data as being protected by using these technologies? Because, uh, you know, from what I understand, and obviously you're the expert, I'm not, but, you know, GDPR doesn't lay out specific technologies. It alludes to categories of technologies, but it doesn't, you know, quote unquote, bless the use of certain technologies and like, oh, you're compliant. Thank you. Have a great day. That's the question, really. And I would uh, um, I like to talk about two aspects. The very first one is around a number of different approaches and standards. If you think about confidential computing, there are a number of different things technically in which companies are achieving that idea of really a secure and, and safe multi-party computation. And then there is the regulatory side of things, which is would regulator in the end kind and say something clear about a certain technology uh, that they would consider compliant. There is something going on. Some uh, here in Europe, the uh, uh, European Data Protection Supervisory Board, uh, as mentioned, um, K anonymity, for example, as a why did they would consider? They didn't say compliant, but definitely a why did they consider appropriate? Um, and then there is also the idea of is confidential computing finally meeting the requirements of anonymity under GDPR? That is the next question that we have seen a number of different kind of uh, guidelines and some paper being published, but this is the answer that we are waiting on and regulators are working on it. So the fact that they actually are considering, uh, you know, relating to uh, a certain technology as delivering compliance in the case, anonymity under GDPR, 
would be kind of a, of a new things from from regulators. So um, would they have said, anyways, that in the GDPR and in many other privacy regulation, they say that companies have to use state of the art technology. And so if this is state of the art as it is, then you could argue um, is already meeting those requirements. But they promised to publish something clearer on uh, this technology, confidential computing in particular, and, and compliance. So we'll see. So the takeaway then for business and technology leaders, hugely promising technology, but keep an eye on the exact um, regulatory outcomes that will come from the authorities. Yes, definitely. I want, and also take a look at what is going on within your organizations. We have seen a lot of data scientist team and data management teams really uh, CIO go out and buy the technology themselves. What we notice is sometimes a real risk assessment from a security privacy um, standpoint aren't there. And I keep saying, if you don't know the risks, it's very difficult that you are going to deploy a magic technology that is going to make <laughs> you, you know, you're going to use to mitigate the risks. You need to know them first. And so make sure that you are working alongside CIOs and then chief data officer, data scientists to really define the risk that you want to mitigate. And you also measure how that technology is helping you in that risk mitigation strategy. Let's keep with the AI theme and go on to prediction number two which is we predicted that at least five large companies will introduce bias bounties in 2022. So AI is interesting. I mean, we were just talking about all the potential benefits and in medical research and, and pharmacology, the, a huge potential. But so far, for the most part, it's been also confirming everyone's worst possible dystopian fears about what it can do. You know, we've seen tremendous bias and discrimination in a lot of the algorithms. Actually, right here in Boston, there was a hospital that was using an algorithm to determine uh, patients for kidney transplants. And it was biased against people of color. It, it held them to a higher standard for qualification. Um, it, it caused enormous um, uh, backlash and, and, and issues with it. And it's just one example. I mean, there's countless examples. We've seen algorithms in recruiting um, bias women applicants as an example. So, what is a bias bounty? Can you define that? And, and do you have any examples for companies that have already deployed bias bounties? Yes. Uh, Ecoms, I guess the, uh, the origin of these is what we have seen um, a lot of companies doing uh, when they are, try, are trying to encourage uh, students, but I would say the public in general, to find vulnerabilities in their security software. Um, uh, we, uh, we know of stories where some tech companies have then hired uh, these, uh, these young students that actually were able to find the vulnerabilities of they have, um, uh, you know, pay them. Uh, for doing that. And then this follows basically that logic. But the idea is to encourage people not to go find the uh, vulnerability in the software, but really uh, go and look for bias um, in these uh, IA systems. Um, and there are examples that we start to uh, to see. Twitter, for example, gives uh, around a little more than $3,000 uh, to students that are able to prove that actually the algorithm uh, favors later, slimmer, and um, and younger faces uh, over others. So uh, th those are the kind of, of examples. But it follows that the dynamic, uh, the dynamics that we have seen in the um, bug bounty and security. Yeah, and bug bounties have become 
enormously popular. In fact, the companies um, are almost considered negligent now for not having a bug bounty in place, or at least some means also of the public and, you know, anyone externally to the company not having a means by which people can actually report a vulnerability that they've found in the software. Do you think it'll become that pervasive over time? Yes, I think that there are the foundation for it. And um, um, there are, again, two layers. I I tend to look um, onto the regulatory side of things as well. And we know that uh, when we discuss trustworthy AI, there is an abundance of regulatory guidance and coming from Europe, outside of Europe, from uh, really a lot of different institutions. And this idea of explainability for once, but also the ability, these um, as a, as a company, as a business, being accountable for the system that you use, it's an imperative across these guidelines. And I think that companies are finding very challenging both to say, I can explain exactly how this model is working. I can tell you exactly the data that we are using. Um, and at the same time, being completely accountable and comfortable that their models are not biased. Is it, you know Those challenges um, would require basically all the efforts that they can put in them and trying to so in, in trying to solving them, um, and I think this one, the uh, bias bounty, is one of those avenues. Right. Yeah, because no matter how much you try to ensure that your algorithms aren't biased, there there is still that worry. The data set is fallible. People are fallible. Um, I almost wonder too if you don't have one in the future, is that you know potentially. A message that you're sending to customers, to employees, that if you're not willing to put up a bias bounty, that you either don't have faith in in your algorithms, um, or maybe it's the opposite, uh, that you do have faith in them. I'm kind of curious, like, what you think having it versus not having it will signal to individuals. When I work with companies that are looking around, even the uh, kind of ethics programs for artificial intelligence um, it's very difficult to find someone and say, I'm 100% convinced that now and in the future, this model will never be biased. There are a lot of points where this can actually fail. Is the kind of data, data quality is another enormous discussion there, especially when you start to have data from different sources. Uh, and not always the quality is exactly the same. Uh, there is a technology itself and the way it is used. But then also when you can agree in principle, we know what's fairness. We know what it, what are these key principles that we want to implement into our systems. There is the challenge of making sure that this principle become a mathematical formula that you can use. And I know that a company agreed in theory what fairness was, but then there was 17 different ways in which the formula would look like. And so in all those um, moments, in all those steps, um, Errors can happen, uh, and I think that um, I would say bias bounty is, again, just a way to make sure that you are showing your best efforts, you are making your best effort to really um, give confidence to the ecosystem that the technology that you're using, the data that you're using, the decision that you are coming to make, um, you know, can be trusted that you're making your best efforts for that outcome. So within that prediction, we said five large companies. Who do we think it's going to be first? Like what kind of companies, what industries will go first? Well, I think tech firms is uh, what we uh, definitely are expecting. So the classic 
you know, Google, Microsoft is, those are the companies that we are expecting. But, uh, you know, at the very beginning of when we started talking about this prediction, uh, you mentioned the example of a, of a hospital. And I'm sure that everybody listening to the podcast can think about uh, a most recent example that they have heard of about bias in AI system. And is again, banks, hospitals, uh, there are a range of uh, organizational, not technology firms that will find themselves in a place to um, think about the uh, bias bounty and, and really um, adopting this, uh, this model. Okay. All right. So let's move to the, the last prediction that we're at least going to talk to talk about on the on the podcast. So prediction number three, 15 firms in the global 500 will appoint a new chief trust officer. So this one's interesting. We've we've talked a lot about tech and the dual the dual role of tech in trust. So this one's more about people, like an actual new C-level executive. What's the advantage of creating this new C-level role, as opposed to looking at your existing executives, you know, your CEO, your COO, the CIO, CISO, Chief Privacy Officer, and holding them all accountable for trust versus creating this new title. There is this idea that when everybody is responsible, no one is really responsible. And I think it's a little bit of the, the thing, but I want to make a very important uh, point uh, that uh, for a very long time, companies have thought, yes, trust is important, but also it felt like destiny will decide who is going to be trusted. What we have uh, really uncovered with the research in this year, in 2021, with these predict- predictions in 2022, is that companies cannot afford to leave trust to the destiny. The destiny. They have to take it in their own hands. Um, we are starting to see companies really building those strategies to make sure that they understand which are the specific um, levers, the specific behaviors that are really encouraging people to trust a certain brand, being employees, customers, partners, which are the levers that actually are bringing those people far uh, from those companies, from a, a, a trustworthy relationship. So uh, I think there is much more awareness that this is not just uh, um, something that happens, who knows why, but there are some specific actions that company needs to take. And I think they need to have a role that is, is looking into this strategy. It's exactly for creating, um, uh, you know, specific measure and specific um, actions you want to take. But another thing that we have learned is that you need to have in place some accountability mechanisms for it. There is uh, one example is a bank that actually is now um, uh, closely um, uh, is tightening the compensation of some of the executives to the outcome of the trust strategies. And so it kind of shows that uh, and you want a, a role for it. So to make sure that you are identifying these mechanisms, that you understand how to trigger those, those sort of, of mechanisms so that the organization feel overall that this is something that is important to them and they are measuring and acting um, on it. So the idea of why you need someone to be responsible for it is because you need to treat it exactly as a, a as a key strategic initiatives with um, metrics and, and um, ways of making sure that, that, that there are accountability mechanisms in place. Having said that, I would add just one more thing. We know that um, typically when we ask um, consumers, business leaders, employees, what is the foundational, what are the foundational elements of trust? 
is very often we hear is cybersecurity, is privacy, ethics, all these things play into that relationship. And I can see how in some organization we have seen uh, chief information security officer, uh, in a few, fewer cases, privacy officer becoming the trust officers for their organization, because for many, it feels like the most natural way of approaching uh, trust. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that as well, where they add CISO and trust officer. Um, you know, the interesting, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, especially where security, like privacy, ethics, like you said, are fundamental to trust. Like if you don't get those right, you can't get to other um, higher orders of, of, of things that drive trust, like brand and reputation, um, dependability, competence, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder, though, again, you're creating a new C-level role in some cases. So if you have this new C-level role and you have these existing roles, you have chief privacy officer, you have a chief risk officer, you have chief information security officer. Um, plus, we've always encouraged line of business owners um, and other executives to have uh, a say and a role in the foundations of privacy and press. Does it just create conflict and confusion, though, with an, yet another role? Well, the, the point I think there is uh, not just the role, is really the mandate that you are going to give to those um, officers and the power uh, that you are going to um, give to, uh, to the new officer that you are uh, really creating. I, I think those are some um, important elements. I would especially strengthen the idea of um, power and what these, what is their, their ability to make change and, and, and to transform their organization and to make sure that the strategies uh, um, uh, it gets followed. Um, but that is an important element. Um, I hear also that sometimes there is a challenge in adding another C-level to the table just because the organization doesn't want to do that. Right. Um, and this is typically where people say, well, you really need to look at the um, at that power, who is making those decisions, who has the power to make those decisions, budget is another um, element that, of course, we um, uh, we look at. And so um, beyond the role itself, there are also these elements that you need to consider. Yeah, yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Enza, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on Forrester's What It Means podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.